As I indicated last week, during the four Sundays of Advent, uh, spread across three years, the lectionary calls for the Old Testament readings in seven of the twelve Sundays to be from Isaiah. The church has always looked to the prophet Isaiah, whose poetry and writings have a resonance to the life and death of Jesus Christ. So it's a special uh, prophetic voice that we hear during Advent. Today we're reading from Isaiah chapter 35, verses 1 through 10. And this is about um, a renewal of nature as well as the strength and hope that that can provide us. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are of a fearful heart, be strong, do not fear. Here is your God. He will come with vengeance. With terrible recompense, he will come to save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the speechless sing for joy. For waters shall break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. The haunt of jackals shall become a swamp. The grass shall become reeds and rushes. A highway shall be there, and it shall be called the holy way. The unclean shall not travel on it, but it shall be for God's people. No traveler, not even fools, shall go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, and they shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Dear God, in the act of this sermon, with the words that I say, and in the act of their hearing, may this event become tidings of salvation, news that is good. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. I'm told that people who grow up or grew up in the southwestern part of the United States claim, as Isaiah does in this Advent passage, that the desert actually does rejoice and blossom. Most of us who live on this side of the Mississippi, even as far east from the Mississippi as we live, when we gaze west, all we really see is the color brown. But I'm told that if you ever live in the desert, you know that it indeed does blossom. 
Homiletician Charles Rice was diagnosed with cancer a few years ago and decided to move with his spouse from his native Pennsylvania to Tucson. A friend of his and mine who calls the aging preacher about every two weeks writes, The end for Charles is not near, but it is coming someday. If I'm lucky and I call him at the right time, I catch Charles when he's not sleeping. We talk about this and that, people we know, politics, what's happening in his church, but mostly Charles likes to give me vivid descriptions of the desert. And never is the desert more wonderful than an advent at Christmas time. Isaiah describes the flowering of the desert. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. One of the greatest passages in American literature expresses this same sense of hope that is provided from the slightest sign of nature. From the prologue to Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter. The founders of a new colony, whatever utopia of human virtue and happiness they might originally project, have invariably recognized it among their earliest practical necessities to allot a portion of the virgin soil as a cemetery and another portion as the site of a prison. Like all that pertains to crime, the prison seemed never to have a youthful era. Before this ugly edifice and between it and the wheel track of the street was a grass plot, much overgrown with unsightly vegetation which evidently found something congenial in the soil that had so early borne the black flower of civilized society, a prison. But on one side of the portal, and rooted almost at the threshold, was a wild rose bush, covered in this month of June with its delicate gems, which might be imagined to offer their fragrance and fragile beauty to the prisoner as he went in or to the condemned criminal as he came forth to his doom in token that the deep heart of nature can pity and be kind even to the prisoner. Waters shall break forth in the wilderness, says Isaiah, and streams in the desert. The burning sand, even the burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. As I said earlier, the church turns to Isaiah frequently during Advent because it finds in his beautiful poetry 
resonance with the promises of redemption that come through the birth and life of Jesus Christ. In Isaiah's poetry, the blossoming of the desert, the renewal of creation and nature gives rise to a strengthening of the human will. Strengthen the weak hands, Isaiah writes, and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are of a fearful heart, be strong, do not fear. The promise of God's coming involves strengthening of the hands and the knees and the heart, as in the Wizard of Oz it bestows courage and freedom from fear. God's coming also promises God combating and overcoming all of those principalities and powers, those forces, human and natural, that hold us down, that hold us back, that visit us with suffering, that surround us with injustice, that overcome us with oppression. Here is your God, says Isaiah. He will come with vengeance, with terrible recompense. He will come and save you. From all these forces, God will come. And in the ironic vulnerability of the birth of a child, save us. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Having moved from the renewal of nature to the strengthening of the human heart, Isaiah next promises in the advent of God healing for the body, both ours and the world's. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, he writes, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the speechless shall sing for joy. No matter our age or stage in life, we yearn for healing, especially at Christmas When our eyesight is failing, we long to see one another one more time across the Christmas table. When our hearing grows impaired, we long to hear the harp, the organ, the piano, the carols, Handel's Messiah. We long to hear it one more time. When the legs have been rendered lame by aging, by arthritis, by injury, We long to take one more step to the door to greet those who have have traveled afar to be in our home, to be with us. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer. Even the tongue of the speechless shall find its music. Same for joy. Moving from the renewal of nature to strength to healing, Isaiah next depicts a human project that can strengthen human community. A highway shall be there, Isaiah says, and it shall be called the Holy Way. A highway is a mark of human civilization a building project of human community, infrastructure, if you will. Like all things we humans construct, a highway has a beginning and an end. It has length and width, depth and breadth. You can draft it on a CAD, plot its dimensions and specifications. You can put it out for bid. You can watch the rebar, the gravel and the asphalt that give it shape and form and a certain permanence. 
on the land. But above all, a highway connects people, one to another, for commerce, for leisure, for sport, for exercise, for religious pilgrimage, for renewal of bonds among friends and family. In this highway linked to God's coming, highways are protected. No lion shall be there, says Isaiah, neither shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. Above all, highways can be places of freedom and release. The ransomed of the Lord shall come, and they shall come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Have you ever set out down a road, a path in the woods, a highway, so as to obtain joy and gladness, so as to see sorrow and sighing flee away? Have you ever set out on a walk, starting by unstrapping your sorrow and sadness from your heart as if it were a too heavy backpack and let it float to the heavens to be swooped up by God, by angels, perhaps by the one whose absence is the reason for your sorrow and your sadness, a highway shall be there and it shall be called the holy way. Sorrow and sadness shall flee away. But in the midst of this lovely highway, there is a word of divide, distance, and separation that appears. The unclean shall not travel on this highway, Isaiah says, but it shall be for God's people. Now, I have to admit that the prospect of traveling on a highway to and from God in which I am protected from those whom I have rendered unclean, those who have become anathema to me, is an appealing prospect. The idea that as I begin walking on this highway, God will keep off my trail and out of my sight, the person who wounded me in such a way that I am still recovering, the event I experienced that led me to a condition that I never understood until a doctor gave it a name and a plan of treatment post-traumatic stress disorder. The idea that as I walk down this highway toward God, I will not have to encounter or even think about what the person down the street did to me when I was a child. What happened to me in the locker room when I was a teenager? What shattered me in my dorm room in college? 
what I saw and suffered in the service, what I did, what was done to me, the sights, the sounds, the smells, what was said about me and to me in the position I accepted right out of graduate school when I was full of vigor and idealism. When we initially hear the promise that on this holy way such persons and the cruelty and injustice they inflict will be excluded, making the highway itself and God's invitation to us to travel on it all the more appealing. The unclean shall not travel on this holy way, but it shall be for God's people. Yet if we read the Bible, it's in our pews or on our lap, ever so closely, if we squeeze our eyelids ever so tightly, we notice the letter R after the first phrase in this verse. And then the letter S after the second phrase in this verse. And these letters direct our eyes to corresponding notes at the bottom of the page. Notes which point to what is called an alternative Alternate, alternate translation. Instead of translating, the unclean shall not travel on this holy way, but it shall be for God's people, we may translate, the unclean shall not pass it the holy way by but it will be for them as well. Now scholars that know a lot more about the intricacies of biblical Hebrew than I know say it is entirely possible that on the holy way down which we travel to meet the Lord who comes to meet us, not even the unclean shall pass that highway by but they will walk down that highway as well. Beside us, ahead of us, behind us. I know that in something as fundamental as the transcendent God being born in our world, and something as personal as our desire to travel toward God throughout our lives and to be welcomed into the arms of God when our life is over. I know in something that is this personal and fundamental and central to our faith, we desire and expect to be reunited with those who have gone before us. Upon our death, we, des we desire to see and we expect to see those who brought us into this world those with whom we shared home and hearth and sibling rivalry, those with whom we stood at the altar, those, with whom, those whom we brought into this world and into our homes. I know that as we anticipate seeing God face to face when our earthly life is over, the next faces we expect to see immediately behind God's face, perhaps within milliseconds, Many seconds, perhaps as soon as we have our questions answered, the next faces we expect to see are those who have gone before us, whom we have missed every day since their passing. 
I know this expectation and this hope. I believe this promise. I say it at every funeral and I give thanks for it whenever I am standing with a family next to the bed of one who has just passed away. But based on the alternative translation of Isaiah, in this pesky little translation note, I am led to ask, what if the birth of Jesus Christ in our midst is such a dramatic and healing event that when we step on this holy way toward God, we are reunited not only with those who have gone before us, but also with those from whom we have been estranged the better part of our lives. Perhaps even those who have wounded us, perhaps even those who have treated us unjustly. What if it's the case that among the first words we hear along that highway, at the end of that highway, when we are welcomed into the arms of God, what if it's the case that among the first words we hear from the next faces we see are, I forgive you. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? What if this alternate translation is the most accurate translation.